seated. We're going to look at um, a couple of places here in Jeremiah this morning. So I want to invite you to start with me in Jeremiah chapter 25, and then we will we'll, we'll land and remain in, in chapter 31 for the majority of our time here together this morning. I hope you're doing well, and I hope you're encouraged in the Lord this week. Uh, I know many of you have been traveling and have been on the road, and we're, uh, we're glad you're here today, and we want to just welcome you. Um, we've been thus far in our series thinking and focusing upon the heart of, of man, um, the heart of uh, Jeremiah the prophet, the heart of God's people, and what God has to say about hearts. And uh, today we're going to shift the focus just a little bit. We're still talking about hearts, but one heart in particular, and that is the heart of God. As we hear what he's had to say about the, the human heart, we've heard some, some difficult things. And as we, we've heard what, uh, what is entailed in, in turning from our sin and from idolatry and turning back to him, we recognize that there is hope, that, that there is forgiveness in Christ and God longs to give us new hearts. But I want to just take a step back for a second. We could say maybe this is foundational to all of it. And realize that, that God's plan of redemption, of unfolding his grace throughout biblical history and throughout human history, reveals his very heart. This is a book that speaks a great deal of judgment and coming destruction and all leading up to, what, well, the majority of it. The majority of this book recounts Judah's wickedness, their stubbornness, their rebellion, and their idolatry, and it's informing them, listen, this is what's coming. Trouble is on the way. There's this little window in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33 that are referred to as the book of consolation and they represent some of the most hopeful of Jeremiah's writings. Before we turn to that hopeful place, I sort of want to just give the foundation here in, from chapter 25. Again, we could read this from any number of passages, but this just sort of lets you know what the people of Judah were in for. Beginning in verse 4, Jeremiah 25 says this, this is God speaking. He said, you've neither listened nor inclined, uh, I'm sorry, this is Jeremiah speaking to the Israelites, the message from God. He says, you've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods and serve and worship them. Provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send to you the tribes of the north. And then um, going down in verse 10, he says, behold, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. This is the judgment coming as a result of their sin. This is a summary of 
what they have done to get to where they are now and what's coming here on the horizon. As we think about the heart of God, as we've said, Jeremiah says more about the heart than almost any other book of the Bible. As we think about the heart of God, we need to understand that right off the bat here, that this judgment and punishment do not come from the heart of God. This is not intrinsic as to who God is. Now, sometimes we struggle with this concept of anger. In fact, some people present God, the God of the Old Testament, as a different God than the God of the New Testament. Sometimes people will read the Old Testament and think, man, that God is just ticked off all the time. He's angry. And then we come here and we meet Jesus in the New Testament. And he's gentle and loving and compassionate. It's almost like these Christians serve two different gods. But the reality is that it is because of God's great love for his people that he is responding this way. If you truly love someone and they they rebel or turn against you, you're going to respond with passion, with emotion. And in God's holiness, he doesn't just get hurt when his people disobey them. He, in his holiness, has to punish punish that disobedience. I love how Christopher Wright describes this. He says, it's strange that some theologians and preachers see something incompatible and irreconcilable in the portrayal in in the Bible's portrayal of God's anger and his love. Anger and love can coexist simultaneously in a human heart. Why not God's? If God were not angry at the evil that destroys human life, could he be said to love us? If God did not love us so much, why would he get angry against all that threatens to destroy us, including our own sinful rebellion and folly? Think about it in a, in a marriage relationship. If you have one spouse who betrays the other, goes out and, and cheats on the other, that, that, the, the, the one spouse, remain, the faithful spouse would be right to be angry. Not just angry because they're embarrassed uh, or, or because they've been humiliated, but they're, anger because, they're in anger because this is a person that they love deeply and they have been betrayed. That person has turned away from them. And that, that because the love is so strong, the anger is so strong. As we talk about the punishment that Israel is about to experience, we need to recognize that this is not who God is at his heart. The Bible never tells us that God is anger, that God is judgment. He does experience those things and he does judge But it's because of his love that those judgments and that punishment becomes so severe and so strong. In fact, there's a verse in Lamentations, which most scholars believe was written by Jeremiah, that describes this so clearly. He says in Lamentations 3, he says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of of his steadfast love. Listen to this last phrase. But he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. What an interesting phrase that our God is not a God who afflicts, punishes, judges, brings trials from his heart. It's not who he is to see his children in pain. 
But because of his great love, he yearns for the hearts of his own. And so as we look at what we're about to see in Jeremiah 31, this is foundational to understand that it is not within the heart of God, it's not intrinsic to his nature to delight in punishing. The Bible does say that God is love, but it never says that God is judgment. He must judge because of his love, but it's not at the heart of who he is. This is where we turn to Jeremiah 31, and we see his heart. In the context of the judgment that is about to come, God speaks these sweet words of redemption and restoration to his people. This is not after the fact. This is not after the 70-year captivity. This is even in the midst of them, of Babylon moving and closing in, God's judgment inching ever closer, and yet God says this word. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 1, he says, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I've loved you with an everlasting love. There I, therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with the gladness of Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth among the blind and the lame, the pregnant women and she who is in labor. Together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come and with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young and the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. 
Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I've heard Ephraim grieving. You've disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore this disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these, your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more shall they use these words in the land of Judah and in the cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together in the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this, I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the promise of God to Ephraim. He uses that title over and over again in this passage. It's, it's referring probably more to the northern tribes of Israel. That's where Ephraim would have been from. It seems to be a term of tenderness. Although the text moves back and forth between the north and the south. Remember, Jeremiah is primarily writing to the southern kingdom. Uh, north has already been conquered. They've been a, about 100 years prior. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, about 100 years prior, they had already been taken into captivity by Assyria. And, 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 and yet he's using both the north terminology for the north and south, picturing that time of bringing them together again. And we see in verse 20 this picture of the heart of God for his people. Did you catch that? Did you catch just how deeply God loves his people? That We see here, as we think about the heart of God, in a passage that captures where he's coming from, verse 20 does so, so beautifully. It tells us that he yearns for his people. Another Hebrew scholar translates verse 20 this, this way. He says, is Ephraim not a dear son to me or a delightful child, that every time I speak against him, I'm so mindful of him again. Therefore, my insides moan for him. I have deep compassion for him. You see, in verse 20 there, the word that's used for heart is not the normal word for heart in the Old Testament. This is a word that is literally means your intestines or, or your bowels. This is this is a picture here. This is a, a taking a, a word that's, that literally means something else. And, and what he's saying is, is that, that deep within me, he's not telling us that God has a physical body with, with organs and guts and that sort of thing, but it is telling us that from deep within God, 
comes this love, this compassion for his people. It's not a superficial love. It's not a love that is easily um, manipulated or twisted. It's, it's not a fleeting love. It comes from deep within who he is. The word, the word is a, an intense word. A word that pictures even um, great heartache. In Jeremiah 4.19, the same word is translated this way. Jeremiah says, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. That word anguish is the same word here, translated heart. This, this is the very heart of God yearning for his people. And that, that word, in, I don't know how your translation renders it, but uh, in verse 20 it says here in the ESV that uh, my heart yearns for him. That, that word yearn uh, again, it could be translated a few different ways, but it pictures uh, uh, a, a tumultuous sea. It's the word, it could be translated turbulent. It can be translated a roar, to, to make a noise or, or groan or moan loudly. It can mean disturbed. It, it, it's not a calm word. It's, it's not a, a word that is whispered. You know, um, when, um, when you truly, uh, you know, you learn with your kids, you learn the, um, the, the different cries that they have, right? Even as an infant, you can begin to, even when your child's an infant, you can begin to distinguish some of the cries. That's their I'm angry cry, that's the I'm really hungry cry, that's the I'm really tired cry. And, and you know, as they get older and they're out playing, you, you can tell the difference between the, the whiny cry, the like, I'm not getting my way cry, and then the like, oh my goodness, they're really hurt right now kind of a cry, the serious the serious bellow, you know, the, the, the deep, deep sobs that come from that, that hurt and that pain. And here, this word pictures God's love, not just a superficial, flippant love, but this is coming deep from in his heart. The word can mean to have a desire for something or someone who's not present. It can be used for a moral, emotional, and spiritual presence as well. In the Hebrew, it it literally reads here, my bowels rumble for him. It's hard to overstate the intensity of this line. We can't quite capture it in English. From its poignant opening question in this verse to the closing language of a visceral love so strong that it causes physical pain, God says, my heart, my inner being, the very core of who I am yearns, longs for, groans for my people. This creates a picture of a God who doesn't just, he's not just casually choosing people for a sandlot baseball game. He's not just in heaven with nothing better to do, and so he decides to create this this nation, Israel, and is going to just have this experiment and see the ups and downs, Egypt and wilderness and prophets and King David. And This is not just for God's entertainment. He has created a people and he set his love upon them and, and his heart yearns deeply for his people. To the very core of his being, God longs, 
longs for and loves his people. The same thing is true of us. As we come to the New Testament, the Bible teaches that we've been grafted in, that he's broken down the dividing walls of separation between Jew and Gentile. These verses are speaking of, of us. We are God's people. And his same heart exists today. God has not changed. He yearns for you. He longs for you to be near to him. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God wants you? That he wants you close? No matter how much we talk about it, no matter how many times we've read about it in scripture, I think many, maybe even most of us, still struggle to believe that deep down in our core. We can believe it on the days where we think we're doing well. Maybe you had a great time of worship at church, a great quiet time in the morning. And we feel like, yeah, I did pretty good. I shared the gospel yesterday. God probably wants me near. But to believe day in and day out with this unchanging fervor that God yearns for you. If we truly let that settle in our being, that it's not based upon our performance, it's not based on, on how great of a dad I've been this week, how great of a husband I've been this week, how great of a pastor, how great of a, a, a family member, a witness, how faithfully I've studied the scriptures this week, allowed the spirit of God to guide me. It's not based on my performance. God's heart yearns. He's telling this to a people in the midst of full-on rebellion. They hadn't turned back to him yet. They had not come to him in repentance. And he says, now my heart longs to be with you. They are still running. They are still fleeing this heart that pursues them. This is foundational to everything in scripture. This is why God did something about Genesis 3. This is why we have Christmas. This is why we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. Because God's heart yearns for his people. This becomes really practical. It means several things. I, I, we could have written down a lot here. What does this mean? I just wrote down a couple from this passage. First of all, it means he'll never forget us. He says, is Ephraim my dear son? My, my precious child? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Over and over and over again, we read that promise in scripture. I will never leave you or forsake you. I think I said this a few weeks ago. I can't remember if I said it in both services or just one, but I, I asked my, our eight-year-old one night as I was tucking him into bed just, just recently, um, what's your, famous, your favorite promise of God's word? What's the, what's the most important thing to you that you've read in the Bible or that you've heard us talk about? And without hesitation, he says that God's never going to leave me. What is it about that that speaks to our heart? 
I don't care whether you're 8 or 80. We need to know that we have a God who's not going to forget us. And I know, I know sometimes it feels like he has. Even as a pastor, I've cried out to God, where are you? Have you forgotten? You who, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still hurting. I'm still struggling, God. There are times when it may feel like he has forgotten. But as a God who always keeps his word, we can come back here. And even in the midst of Israel's rebellion, he says, I will not forget you. One way to translate this here is, the more, the more I speak of him, the more vividly I remember him. God is the kind of father who never forgets his children. I didn't put it on the screen, but Isaiah 49, 15, and 16 tells us this. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. The Bible says that it's not likely that a nursing mother is going to forget her child. But he said it's possible. But there's no way that I can forget you. Put your name right here. By the way, biblical basis for tattoos right there. I don't know. <laughs> Won't start that. <laughs> God says he's engraved us on the palm of his hand. Ever present. We've all done that. Well, a lot of us have done that, right? Written a little note. I can't, can't forget this. You know you're going to put it on your hand because that's going to be close to you. You're not putting it on your back somewhere where you can't see without a mirror and someone writing it backwards. Like you're, you put it right there on your hand because that's, that's ever present. You know that you're going to notice that. God says that we're so important to him. We're so precious to him. He's engraved us on the palm of his hand. This verse also tells us, secondly, as we think about why this is important, that he will surely have mercy on us. The, the Hebrew here is for emphasis. Um, the word surely is not actually in the Hebrew. Translators translate it that way to make it a little more readable, but the, the word mercy is repeated twice. And so in the Hebrew, it literally reads, having mercy, I will have mercy. In Hebrew, words are repeated for emphasis, and so that's why translators put this. I will certainly have mercy. I most assuredly, I will be merciful. It's not in doubt. It's not in doubt. It's not in question. We, we all have people in our lives who um, are bad about being on time. Um, some of us are like, you know, the, the time debate, right? Like some of us, you're not, you're not on time unless you're 15 minutes early. And, uh, and then there are other people who are like, have no concept of time. It was like they grew up in, in I mean, they would fit well in a South American, uh, Latin American culture where it's just, it's about relationship, not about the time. And, and uh, we all have people in our lives who have, who will say, listen, I'm going to be there at noon. Lunch is at noon, I'll be there. And then they're showing up at one, wondering why they, they're, they're getting cold leftovers. 
We don't have to worry about God's promises. When he says, surely I will have mercy, it's not maybe he will be merciful. It's not he's going to think about being merciful. He's not even saying, if you're good, if you'll get your act together, I will be merciful. He says, surely it is a real thing. I will have mercy. It is a guarantee. Brendan Manning says this, he has a single relentless stance toward us. He loves us. He is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. He guarantees mercy. What makes it, what is it about this that our hearts find so difficult to receive? Why do we push back naturally against a truth like this? Why do we so often tend to recoil when God is moving toward us in mercy. Do we feel like our sins are too bad? Do we feel like we don't deserve it? Do we feel like he's not sincere? Do we feel like he's going to let us down and disappoint so I can't trust him because other people have disappointed me? God moves towards us in mercy. He says, I will surely have mercy. Thirdly, I read this verse and I thought, man, this is, a, this is a sermon by itself. I don't know if you caught it when we read it way back in verse 2, chapter 31. He says, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. He's speaking there literally. They survived attacks and punishment and were able to find the grace of God in the wilderness. He may have been speaking about coming through Egypt, hearkening back to that deliverance from the, the hands of the Egyptians and crossing the Red Sea. And they found grace in the wilderness. Now they complained and grumbled like I probably would have, or having to eat the same thing day in and day out. They, they found all kinds of reasons to think that their situation was not ideal, but at the end of the day, God had been so good to them, so good to them. I want you to know today, because God's heart yearns for you, because God's heart longs to draw you close as his child, he offers grace in the wilderness. We may not literally be stuck in the wilderness, in a desert somewhere, I suppose that could happen, but spiritually speaking, we've all found the wilderness. If you haven't, you will. And sometimes it's a long time. The wilderness land, Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Sometimes God allows us, for whatever reason, sometimes purposes undisclosed, sometimes reasons that he tells us or reveals to us. But he delights in showing grace especially in those moments, revealing his presence to us. There's more I'd love to say on that, but fourthly, we're reminded here that there is hope because we have a God who yearns for his children, because we have a God whose innermost being is stirred with affection for his children, we have hope. Did you catch verse 17? It sounded a lot like Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, I will restore health. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. 
He says, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. There is hope. We've talked about this recently, but there are times in our life where we all struggle to find hope. We're all trying to find a glimpse of something good, some reason to carry on. Remember, and I don't want to downplay anybody's situations of hopelessness, but I want you to think about what Israel was going through. Yes, it was their own fault, their own doing. But they were about ready to get completely annihilated, nearly completely annihilated as a people. Their homeland was done for. These people would be homeless in just a few short years. Their nation would be no more. Many of their children would be either slaughtered or carried off into Babylon as slaves or like Daniel to serve in the court. Like it wasn't just like their 401k had taken a hit. Again, I'm not trying to minimize anybody's struggles. It wasn't like they had a, a, a bad cold for a few weeks that they just couldn't kick. Or a friend who wouldn't talk to them. Again, I, again I, I'm not trying to minimize our trials, but comparatively speaking here, they were about ready to be wiped out by a foreign nation. And God says there's hope. <laughs> I don't know what you're going through this morning, but if you've sensed that, I don't know if there's hope here. I don't know if this can be fixed. I don't know if there's a reason to go on here. I don't know. I, don't, I, barely, I barely could get out of bed this morning, and I, I'm not planning on it tomorrow. God tells us that even in the midst of deepest pain, that the darkest night, the most arid wilderness, there is hope. There is hope. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe today that you have a God who yearns for you in the very deepest part of his being? Not just generally, God so loved the world, but God yearns for me. He longs for me to draw near to him. Do you really believe that this morning? This language almost seems over the top, doesn't it? Too effusive, too lavish. One writer says, Jeremiah 31.20 speaks of the turbulence of divine longing. But you see, it doesn't just extend in some general, vague way to God's people. God's not just saying, without putting action to it, I love you, good night. But that yearning for his people, that longing to draw us close to him, took on flesh and blood. I love how Dane Ortland puts it. He says, what if the heart of God wasn't just something coming down on us from heaven, but something that showed up among us here on earth? Some one. He goes on to say, if Jeremiah 31, 20, my heart yearns for him, what if those words were to get dressed in flesh, what might those words look like? We wonder. It looks like a Middle Eastern carpenter 
restoring men's and women's dignity and humanity and health and conscience through healings and exorcisms and teaching and hugging and forgiving. He goes on to write, and now we begin to see resolution to the tension that Jeremiah 31.20 has built into it, a tension that rumbles down through the entire Old Testament, building momentum, growing in sharpness, the tension between divine justice and divine mercy. God says here, I speak against him, but he also says, I do remember him still. Indictment and love, justice and mercy. Swiveling back and forth here, we see all through the Old Testament. But at the height of human history, justice was fully satisfied and mercy was fully poured out at the same time when the Father sent his eternally dear son and darling child to a Roman cross where God truly did speak against him, where Jesus Christ poured out his blood, the innocent for the guilty, so that God could say of us, I remember him, I remember her still. Even as he forsook Jesus himself, on that cross we see what God did to satisfy his yearning for us. He went that far, he went all the way. The blushing effusiveness of heaven's bowels funneled down into the crucifixion of Christ. So my brothers and sisters, let us repent of our small thoughts of God's heart. Let us repent and let us allow him to love us. You see, not only do we need to receive this love, but we have a world that is starving for a yearning love. A love that remembers instead of forsakes. A love that isn't tied to our loveliness. A love that gets down underneath our messiness. A love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness we might be walking through even today. Love of which even the best human romance is the faintest of whispers. This morning, as we spend time in prayer, I, I want to invite you to come and, and just even stay where you are for a while after the service and just Thank God for this love. Meditate upon his great love for you. And if you'd love to pray with us up front, we, we would welcome you to join us. And just ask God to open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might receive his yearning affection for us. And that our hearts would be stirred to proclaim this great news, this great love to a world which so desperately longs for it. Let's just take a moment of, of quiet and bow in prayer even right now. God, to hear you speak this way almost causes us to blush. Your heart, your, your innermost beings, your deepest affections, you, you yearn for your people. You long for us. 
God, I realize that these words of yours, for some of us this morning, are undoing years of deep hurt. Perhaps years of bad theology. Of never feeling like we could be worthy. That's, that's not what it's about. It's not about us and our worthiness. It's, it's about you, oh God, and the great love you have for those who are unworthy, for those who don't deserve it. And there's not a single one of us here who does. Oh God, this morning I pray that you would break through a heart. A heart that feels like they've gone too far. They've run too far. They've disobeyed one too many times. They've crossed the threshold, the point of no return. I feel like not only is there no way you could love them, oh God, but that deep down you're actually disgusted with them. God, pour your love into that heart this morning. Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians height and depth and breadth and width to, to know the love of Jesus Christ. Strike our hearts in a fresh and a powerful way. Just how deep your yearning, your longing for your people truly is, oh God. keeps on loving us and who has set us free from our sins the cost of his blood glory and dominion belong to him and to all ages amen may God strengthen you